Hello, and welcome to Bobcast, the podcast that aims to present to you in each episode a single work by Johann Sebastian Bach and a recommended recording. I'm your host, John Hendren, and in each episode, we'll not only be getting into what makes a performance great, we'll also discuss a little bit about the piece chosen for each episode. In addition, I hope to share a little bit in each short episode about myself. And in the first episode, focused on Bach's first Brandenburg Concerto, let's just say that I discovered Bach back in the late 1980s, and he's been my favorite composer since that time. As a listener of this podcast, you likely have an interest in Bach's music too. So let's get started. a few assumptions with this podcast, um, not just in this episode, but as, as the series. And that's the first is that if you're listening to this, you're probably not a Bach expert. And I wouldn't say that I'm a Bach expert either, although I've been a fan of Bach's music for many years. I'll try to explain things as, as if they're new to you, but I'll also try not to keep explaining things as the podcast uh, progresses. For instance, with Bach's first Brandenburg Concerto, you'll see it listed with a catalog number, and I think we should point out what those those numbers are all about. Um, for the first Brandenburg Concerto, it's BWV 1046. Bach's works have been cataloged by a gentleman by the name of Wolfgang Schmieder, and the catalog system he came up with was the Bach, um, Bach Work Catalog, or in German, I'm going to butcher this, the Bach Werke Verzeichnis and identifies each piece by unique number. And you don't need to know those numbers to enjoy Bach's music, but it is sometimes helpful to know of them. For instance, to search for a recording, to look up uh, a score if you're interested in, in reading music. Um, and it, I find it becomes very helpful when you're looking at vocal works because German is not a language I'm real familiar with. And typing in the German on the computer can, you know, can make mistakes, don't find what I'm looking for. And so when I am putting music into my iTunes collection, for instance, I always, always add those numbers. And it, all the composers, really, um, big composers out there like Beethoven and Mozart, they all have these catalog systems. And the numbers are just a simple way to look up the works. And so in Bach, BWV is the, is the uh, catalog number. And they're sort of organized for box works by the type of work. And so the Brandenburg Concertos are in the higher end of, of the catalog, 1046. If you think of Bach's last cataloged work, um, 1080, is, or, or that kind of ends. And then um, they have found new works or, just, or, or have attributed works to Bach since the system was put into play. And so those, those higher numbers, like 1100s, towards the end of the of the scale and if you're looking at a very low number in the Bach catalog you're usually typically looking at as cantatas which start with BWV 1. So Bach wrote these six 
so-called Brandenburg Concertos. And we'll get to more of the story behind them in, in future episodes because the history is very interesting. Uh, he never published these works in his lifetime, and we only discovered them many years after he died. They found them in a, a stack of music they're going to throw away. He did, however, reuse some of the material, and so we've there are portions of the Brandenburg Concertos you'll find in his uh, his religious works uh, in cantatas, both with singing on top, or is is kind of a introductory symphonia to the to the larger piece, and. As you'll discover with Bach, he was never shy about reusing quality material uh, or even changing his ideas um, as he had different uses for the music. The first concerto is the most grandiose of all of them. It's, it's sort of the biggest in terms of having four movements, and it's scored for a number of soloists. Um, none of the Brandenburg concertos are the same in terms of their scoring. They're all kind of unique. And so the first one... Uh, is where Bach calls for three oboes, a small violin referred to as a piccolo violin, uh, two horns, a bassoon, and a supporting orchestra, including the, the basso continuo, which is a part of many Baroque works. It's the bass line, and you'll, you'll hear harpsichord in the bottom. Bach doesn't specifically write out a harpsichord part, but it's just kind of implied that that instrument's going to be um, flushing out chords along with instruments like a cello or um, a larger double bass. Both the oboes and bassoons are, are double reeds. And it's not unusual in a lot of Baroque music when there are oboes present that you would have a bassoon for the bass line. Um, beyond the, the, the number of instruments, Bach chose an unusual structure for this work. Um, a lot of concertos by Venetian composers like Albanoni or Vivaldi have a three-movement structure, fast, slow, fast. And we know Bach was sort of aware of Vivaldi's work. He uh, rearranged some of his concertos. And while Vivaldi didn't write every concerto in three movements, um, his contemporary Telemann liked a four-movement structure of slow, fast, slow, fast. But what Bach does here is a little unusual. He goes fast, slow, fast, and then gives us a series of dances, um, uh, a minuet with in, in rondo, which means that the, the main theme keeps coming back and sort of with other dances in there. And so having the dance structure as part of a concerto and the opening sort of just very big and bold opening of this concerto really point to France a lot. Um, and we do know that, that Bach was aware of not only Italian style at the time, but, but French style. Um, and these final, this last movement, the fourth movement of, of Brandenburg one, if you compare recordings, it's the one that probably has the most difference among the performances in terms of the tempos and uh, style that, that folks put into the interpretation. Like Vivaldi's Four Seasons, these concertos by Bach are among his most popular works. There's a lot of choices in the recordings that are available. Of the recordings I've purchased and collected, all of them use uh, historical copies or use the authentic instruments from Bach's time. This is a movement that got started in the late 60s, really started to blossom in the 80s. Uh, if you went out into a record shop in the 80s and were looking for a recording of this, you'd find kind of a mixture. Today, predominantly, you'll find the historically informed recordings. Um, the, 
the feature in this recording, um, which is the first one I know of that did this, used a lower pitch standard. Um, I'm not going to get too deeply into this, but it is believed that a lot of the instruments um, in Baroque times were not all tuned the same. And we've sort of adopted today a, a, a pitch standard that's half a tone lower than today's pitch. So if you were playing a C on the piano, it would actually sound like a B, a B natural, the note right next to it. And this recording uses what, what they refer to as a French pitch because they did some research into the the woodwind instruments that would have been available to Bach at the time. And they made the decision to record at around 392 hertz for an A, which on the piano is a whole tone uh, lower. So since this is written in the key of F major by Bach, if you were to play along on the modern piano, you'd be you'd be like an E flat, a whole tone lower. Um, it's important at a micro level to know that because the sound, the color of the sound is going to be different. Um, and if you weren't comparing albums, I'm not sure that would be so important. But uh, if you do compare and you're, and you're listening to one versus the other, that's, that's one of the things that's kind of interesting. You know, I've not been able to find a lot of recordings by this ensemble, but the recording came out in the mid-1990s on the Virgin Veritas label. Among all the recordings I have of the Brandenburgs, their reading of number one is, is very flamboyant, daring, I think it's a lot of fun. Among the standout characteristics is that bold horn playing that you heard, uh, and what we'll hear later is some improvisation by the oboes. On the downside of this recording, the recording quality I don't think is the best. Um, I tend to listen both with speakers and with headphones. And the recording suffers, I believe, from the microphones not being close enough to the instrument. So what we're going to get in that recording, you'll notice it a lot if you wear headphones. Incidentally, headphones also allow you to hear some of the details a little better, at least for me. Uh, but you're hearing not only the instruments themselves, and I think the way things were placed, the, the oboes come out pretty clear, but the other instruments not so much. And so you're not hearing just the instruments, but you're also hearing the, ref the, the reflection of the instruments from the, the recording studio or the, or the space they're in. Um, and I typically pay a lot of attention to the, the recorded sound in recordings. It's something I just can't ignore. I wish I could sometimes because a bad recording can really ruin what otherwise is a really good performance. So this one I don't like as much because of that, but the performance here is just above and beyond. Uh, it, it's really cool. When this recording came out, incidentally, I remember seeing a review that, that did not like it at all. They thought it was too bold. I think over time that 
some of our ideas like that settle down a bit, but hopefully you'll like it. Um, interestingly, the Academy of Ancient Music under Richard Egar, uh, whom I heard perform these concertos live, also adopted the lower pitch standard that this recording kind of established. And their lead oboe player also improvised uh, in the dances much in the style that you'll see you'll hear in this recording which is kind of cool so it just lends itself that some really good ideas um, do get tossed around and sometimes it's it's perhaps via a recording like this let's listen to some of the horn playing this is, comes from the uh, ending in the fourth movement uh, the minuet dances listen to classical music you rarely hear horns that are that kind of outdoorsy um, and Bach is definitely evoking the hunt here and there's some conjecture about what type of horn is really intended in this type of piece um, there are two different types available at the time one with a very tight coil uh, you it would not look like something you'd see from a modern symphony orchestra the other has a bigger bell it's it's bigger and it looks more like today's French horn without all the extra tubing in it. Of course, in a in a Baroque horn, uh, there's no there's no finger, so all the all the change in notes are happening with your mouth. Um, and there's interchangeable pieces you could take out to change the key of a horn, but otherwise, it's sort of a, a rudimentary instrument. You're not going to be able to do all the things that a, a modern French horn uh, does, and so it kind of makes sense here that Bach's using the instrument as a hunting instrument and this ensemble definitely kind of took that to task and they're representing those horn calls with with a lot of um, I think they're just having a lot of fun with it and they're not really holding back and it gives a festive feel to the work the strange part for me in this concerto is the other unusual instrument the piccolo violin or violino piccolo. Um, as I've read on it, it was sort of an instrument used for dancing. It perhaps came from Poland. And I want to listen to the third movement. That's a fast movement. It pits the violin in a difficult spot. The instrument is softer than the regular violin. It's got that against it, and yet it's got to live on top of everything else, uh, all the other texture of the instruments. And box requiring requires some really athletic work from the performer to be noticed in this texture. You'll notice that there's a lot of uh, multiple stops where, you, where the accord is written out and the, the bow has to go across multiple strings to, to sound all those tones. Um, and I'm wondering if, if the Bach has pitted this violinist as a character in a story. Um, and what is Bach trying to say with instrument trying to fight the rest of the crowd? It's kind of interesting. The effect here is only heightened by Stravaganza Hamburg's choice in tempo. It's not typical. It's a little fast, but I think it's done so very well. Some very strong playing. Enjoy. 
You know, there's another spot where the piccolo violin shines in this recording, and it comes again from the fourth movement. First, we'll hear the oboes playing alone with the bassoon, which is simply delicious. If we were to be following Bach's score, we'd see that these um, the oboe players are putting a lot of extra notes in that really work, but Bach did not write. That's the improvisation. We call it improvisation just like we do in, in jazz music, right? But it's got to fit a character. And one of the things that uh, instrumentalists of Baroque music will do is study not only how to play an instrument, how to play the notes off a page, but what the, uh, the all the other baggage that comes along with playing music of this period. And by reading treatises and things, you kind of learn through instruction that, that was written during the time about how to do this improvisation. Um, it's unusual to hear it because typically we think of this in solo music, like a solo keyboard piece. You'd expect maybe a performer to add stuff. What's unique here is that in an, in an ensemble, there's lots of stuff added. And they may have rehearsed it this way many times, but to us hearing this, uh, at least when I heard it for the very first time, it was very jarring because it was very different. Uh, but I think it's done so well. When the strings come in, there's also a completely unwritten part um, played by the piccolo violin. And this is kind of special because um, at this spot, we're only expecting to hear the strings play the melody. And then on top of it is kind of this show-off character again who, uh, who really does a good job in this recording. And I remember even hearing it for the first time it was so exciting because you, you're familiar with this. You're like, okay, what, what makes this recording different from another one? Uh, why did I buy a new one? How does it compare? And this being the first concerto in the box, you throw in the CD and it's like, whoa. The horns arrested you and then it was all this extra notes going on, which was really cool. It sounded great. You know, some, some might quibble at the tempos chosen by Ramp. In these dances especially, they were, they're really fast for if you're actually going to dance to them. Um, and there are some folks out there that believe that if you're going to play a dance movement, uh, you play it at a dance tempo. And there's some guides out there that uh, give us an indication of what those tempos were. If you, if you know how to do the dance, I mean, you could actually do it and you'd know if it was too fast. Um, but what I think this recording does, even though it's too fast to dance to, uh, it shows us that at this tempo things still work. And that works as long as you have competent players, and these guys really are, are playing well. Uh, I have little doubt that the conductor, uh, harpsichordist, Mr. Ramp, wanted this recording to stand out. And what really has uh, made it a favorite of mine is all the creativity and thought that went into this. Um, so it's one of my favorite recordings of Brandenburg number one. There are a lot of contenders out there. As with all episodes, I'm going to include some details in the show notes, including a link to where you can purchase this recording.
I hope I've whet your appetite with a little bit of Bach's first Brandenburg Concerto. It is unusual. It has a unique scoring, has a unique organization, uh, but it is a celebrated work. And hopefully, in listening to La Stravaganza Hamburg, you might be interested to see what they do with the other Bach Brandenburg Concertos as well. Thank you for listening to Bachcast. I'm John Hendren. <laughs>